So when you invest in these types of products, like I want to remember what I invested in, how much I invested, what my expectations were, and then ongoing holding this investment, what happens on the way? Like I get cash flow distributions or capital calls, or I get an update regarding specific, like these are things that I track. It just became really difficult when you have like multiple numbers of these types of investments across different entities, holding structures, it's just complicated. And that's why this, those spreadsheets for tracking that, when you try to manipulate them too much, it becomes a whole job on its own. All right, welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited business owners become educated and get access to private investments to help them grow and build their legacy. Uh, we do this by providing insight and access to successful fund managers and investors across multiple asset classes. And I'm your host, Pascal Wagner. And today we have uh, Latan Yahav uh, joining us from Israel. Welcome. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here, Pascal. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, man. So I'm going to give a quick uh, a bio of uh, Litan. So uh, over Litan's career, uh, he was a naval officer in Israel in the Israeli Defense Forces for six years. He started and sold a company called Sagoma after three years, which specialized in the 3D imagery of diamonds and gemstones. And today he is the CEO of Visor, whose mission is to provide full and digital visibility of all personal finances for the accredited do-it-yourself investor. He's 40. He lives in Israel and is married uh, with three young children. And he began investing in private investments in 2015, has invested over 2.5 million in over 30 deals, and private placements make up over 30% of his investments uh, with his favorites, including multifamily, self-storage, and ground-up development. All right, so before I go any further, I need to understand what does 3D imagery of diamonds and gemstones mean? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a crazy world we found ourselves in. Um, so me and my, I, Israel is a weird place to sort of different than the rest of the world. I was in the Navy for six years, as you mentioned, went to school here when I was older. Uh, and my last uh, year of studies was in this entrepreneurship program funded by Sam Zell. And we were looking to a business to build as part of this entrepreneurship program and found ourselves in the diamond industry. No background whatsoever, but saw that there's this crazy industry, super high tech, I mean, super high security with almost zero technology. And we're like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, you can't be trading diamonds around the world with flying around the world with diamonds in different places on your body and shipping them around the world with different types of shipping companies. And you can't just send an image of a diamond over the internet 3D image, just an interactive that you can sell. And that's what we, we, we said, let's, let's go and build this. And our ignorance is what helped us succeed because we had no clue if it was possible or if it wasn't. Um, and it went well. And we, uh, so we built a business that helps diamond dealers and manufacturers trade their diamonds online without physically shipping them for inspection. And so we had offices in all the diamond exchanges in the world and machines that we developed like a microwave machine, you put a diamond in, photographs it for 360 degrees, creates this 3D image that you can then send that image to a potential buyer instead of shipping the diamond itself. Um, 
So, so you're telling me that you spent six years in the Navy. Like I- I'm trying to put myself in a situation that I'm what, like 17 or 18, you get drafted into the defense forces and then you serve your time and eventually you get out and then you just somehow stumble into this and was like, this sounds like a good idea. It's like, I mean, we, so, so, well, short story, short answer. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what happened. Long story <laughs> is sort of, you know, when you build a startup and you know this as well, right? You don't really look for this solution. You look for like a problem that's big enough and interesting enough to solve. And that's what we found. Like we, when the beginning of this sort of the Zell program, you look for different ideas to build different problems to solve, speaking with like, you know, many different people in different industries. And we just found this really weird industry with so many problems. And we decided we want to tackle that and solve that problem. Got it. Okay. So, so this is where kind of everything changed for you. You had, you built this company and eventually it became acquired and talk to me about what happened after the acquisition and like, what did, what did your life look like? Um, what, what was awesome about it? What problems did you have? What was that experience like? Yeah. I mean, these are everything I say now are good problems to have. Um, but there's still problems, right? So, so we sold the company back in 2015, stayed on for a few more years to, to scale it. And, and we didn't make tens of millions of dollars in that exit, but we made enough. And, you know, when you sell a company, there's a bunch of PR around it and you get approached by a bunch of people who want to help you manage your money. Um, and the cool thing in Israel is that sort of you're pretty much feel like you're set for retirement because it's mandatory in Israel to have a retirement account. An employer and an employee have to deposit money into an retirement account. And so every cash you have on the side, it's like, all right, how am I going to make more money with the money I just have now? And another cool thing is that every second person here invests in real estate abroad. Um, like we always joke that, you know, you have 50,000 available. You're going to go buy an apartment in Berlin you've never seen before with a guy, you know, from, from the military. Right. And so, so we get this, this, this amount of money and get approached by a bunch of people who, offer to manage it. And we didn't want to do that. At some point, even we put it into a private bank and they kicked us out of that bank after a few months because we just took all the money and deployed it elsewhere into real estate and private equity and, and stuff like that and, and abroad. And so for us, our issue was how do we find people that can help us find opportunities to invest in? Um, and that's how we sort of got exposed into real estate and started to invest in the US and Europe with people that we, we knew and trusted um, to find deals. Some of these deals were, uh, and we can dive into, you know, different types of real estate deals, but that's sort of the, the issues that appeared, uh, from the get go when we sold the company and started to deploy cash. So help me understand, uh, well, you know, you mentioned that all these financial advisors and people started reaching out to you after the press and you, you know, probably rightfully so I've been in the same situation. All these people reach out and it's like, Whoa, I don't, I don't want these people just showing up at my doorstep just because I had some success. Why, why did you turn, uh, kind of these people away and decide to go about it on your own? Um, so, I mean, first off, I'm an Israeli and I'm an entrepreneur. I think I can always do things better, um, than these people who think they can take my money and manage it for me, which could be stupid. Second off is sort of the public markets from my approach are most are the fact that most people do not beat the index funds. And for me to give money to someone who can promise me until tomorrow that they're going to 
create an amazing portfolio with great stocks and bonds or whatever. And it's like, I, I mean, and get paid a lot of money to do that. It might be well, and there probably are really good people who know how to do that well. But the majority from my, ex from what I heard from other people that are like me made, that sold a company was just go buy an index fund. And if you want to make returns, find other really good people that manage funds um, or other investment products in the alternative world. And that's where you want to grow your money and take risks because you're still young. Um, but, but I think the core is that I just thought I can do it better, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so oh, walk me down that path. So, uh, you mentioned before in the show that, uh, you then started, uh, you know, diving into this world and trying to figure out where you started placing your money. Start, start walking us through, uh, you know, what was the research? What was your train of thought, uh, at that time? And then what, how did you start making investments? So for, for me, and again, me and my co-founder, we did everything together, more or less. And so we decided, well, we're not going to be real estate professionals. Like, we're not going to go dive into go like actively flipping houses, actively renting out houses. But we knew we wanted to get into real estate to some extent. And so we started to speak with friends of ours and friends of friends of ours. And our first two investments were buying two single family homes in the U.S. Actively sort of these are rental properties, pretty cheap rental properties with just to get our, our, our toes wet um, and had a property management firm there. And we, we never seen these properties like, I mean, overall over the past eight years, I've never seen any investment property I've invested in. That's another topic, but, but, but overall, so we bought these two single family homes with the idea to rent them out, make pretty nice returns on paper. And a few months into that, we also invested a few uh, into a few LP deals, sort of in syndications as LPs and sort of, these two investments started to develop together and the single family homes just turned out to be a ton of work for us. Like we'd tenants that would break stuff, evictions, municipality reaching out telling us we need to fix this road and this tree, just like a lot of stuff. And at the same time, we have these LP investments that are just generating every quarter cash flow, zero involvement returns are better than the single family homes. And we're like, shit, why would we want to do these single family homes? And at that point we decided, screw that. We're not doing single family homes. We're not doing any active stuff anymore because our passion is not the real estate. It's to have our money deployed and increase in value while we go and we find another startup to build. That was sort of our mindset. Um, and we found that those active stuff was just not for us, even though, you know, it's a risk return. The potential there might be, might be nice, but for us, the work just wasn't worth it. Yeah. Okay. Well, go back, go back for a second. Like you said that you didn't want to be a real estate professional and really dive in, but you then still ended up buying two homes anyway. What yeah. did I miss? So we thought that that's passive. We wanted to be <laughs> passive, right? Um, and we thought that that's a good way to be passive. I mean, you buy these two properties, you have a property management firm there. Like what can go wrong? Right. <laughs> and, and, and apparently a lot. Right. So, um, uh, and just like the the timing of both of them just like was insane. Like these LP stuff were performing really good and these were not. Um, and yeah, that, that's what pushed us over towards. Yeah. Okay. So, so you made, you made these couple first LP investments, like walk us through what those funds were and maybe uh, how you decided those were the right ones. Like, were they also single family homes and you just did some active and some passive or were they in different asset classes and why? Yeah. So first of all, uh, it's an important point for me, at least 
is I don't really care about the asset classes that much. I care about the people I invest with. And so these, these funds or these, they weren't really funds. These like syndications, like single opportunity investments where they raise money for them, multifamily value add type stuff. Um, and it was just because it was, these were people that we trusted, like with no doubt that they will never screw us over and that they'll not lie to us. They might not have, you know, 10, 20 years of experience. But they're good people that are not going to screw us over. And that's, that was always, uh, until today, that's like our methodology, deciding who to invest with. The asset class geography is secondary, even, you know, third place. Secondary for me is the numbers, sort of like the numbers, did the numbers match my strategy? Anyway, but that's sort of like what brought us to, to invest in this, specifically that first, um, GP we invested with was multifamily value add. I think in Florida, that was the first deal. Um, learned a lot of lessons since then. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into those. But I think one of the points that maybe I uh, I have a differing viewpoint on, which uh, I'd like to dive into is, so I very much think of myself, so I, I, I 100% agree, like investing with someone uh, that you know, uh, and that you believe in and that you trust uh, is like very much at the top of the list. Um, but I think the way I I approach this right now is, okay, well, um, I might know someone who invests in commercial office buildings and I trust them and I know they won't screw me over, but given what's happening kind of with remote work and people, you know, moving to um, not being in the office anymore and, and commercial office building uh, projects coming down in uh, value as we're seeing in San Francisco right now, for example, uh, I'm very much thinking, what asset classes do I want to be in given where we are in this economic cycle? And then what opportunities or which operators do I trust that I can invest in that can help me invest in those? Um, how, why, why do you think, uh, do you, I, I guess I'll restate the question. Do you think the operator tops that or do you have a differing opinion to that? I think that's a great point. Um, but I also, I mean, it, it's sort of like, it's and or, um, sort of, all right. So if an operator that I trust is in an asset class I don't believe in, obviously I won't invest with that operator. Sure. Um, but I'll look for an asset class I believe in maybe, and then look first off for an operator I can trust. And if I don't find one, I might end up investing in that asset class I don't really believe in as long as it's the operator I trust. Does that, does that make sense? Like, yeah. Um, I guess now, eight years in, I have access to almost any asset class I want with a lot of people I trust. Many of them are in the same community you and I are in, right? And go abundance just because, because that's for me what matters, right? To, to find enough people I can trust across different asset classes that I can choose. Totally. Okay. Okay. I'm glad we clarified that point. Okay. So, uh, continuing on. So you've, you invested in this first multifamily deal, um, with someone that you trusted. And, uh, and then since then you've, you've invested in over 30 deals, 2.5 mil. Uh, so maybe let's, let's, uh, juxtapose the, the starting point of where you were, where you were managing some things actively and you wanted to have your money working for you. What, uh, how did, how did, let's say from that point to today, how has your life changed? 
um, or what are maybe the benefits that you have now or, uh, yeah, how, did, how has your lifestyle changed now that you've invested in funds rather than uh, maybe doing active management? So first of all, I understand now what's important to me, which is to be as passive as possible while generating as much returns as possible. Like risk, that's sort of for me, sort of this clarity that came up over the years. Um, another thing is sort of that, you know, the money, and this is really a cliche, but it's so important for me, at least the money is the means and the objective is the freedom or the time that money provides to spend time with people that I care about. Uh, even though sort of I went all like all in on a new startup now, and that's just taking up a lot of time and totally eating up the time and freedom that the money has. has yeah, but the, but the difference is you now get to choose what you want to work on, right? Uh, because you have that time freedom. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I cut you off. Keep going. No. So I think so. Just the passiveness um, has been really key uh for for me in my investing in my investing uh um i'd say experience short experience i don't think i think eight years is not i don't think it's a lot but it's 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 enough to sort of understand what i like and what i don't like and questions to ask and gathered enough people i can trust so so at this at the moment like i wish i had more liquidity because i have so many people i'd want to invest with right that's 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 a different a good problem as well but yeah yeah yeah, when you when you were investing, did you when you started on your journey, did you focus on cash flow investments or did you want to just have a, a gamut of different asset classes that you were in or um what was your objective and has that changed over time? Yeah, I don't know if you're going to like this answer, but but the answer is like, for me it's again it's the operator, right? It was finding people I can trust and then if it was a cash flowing asset or if it was a development asset, that was for me secondary at the beginning at least. Today, um I'm looking more for cash flowing stuff um, that have an upside. And it's only because I think the risk profile of those investments tend to be lower than other types of investments that don't cash flow. And I think in these uncertain, these uncertainty, uncertain times, um, you want to be really careful about the risks you take investing. So, yeah, yeah, I hear that. Okay. So, um, so now that you've you've gone through eight years of investing, you've mentioned that you've learned a ton uh, since the beginning. Walk us through, uh, walk us through some of those. So again, it's all for me. It's all about the people, right? And so the, the idea about, about the people is 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 so important to the fact that for me, I tend to invest with medium to smaller operators because I can know the people in charge on a personal level and guarantee that these people are not guaranteed, but have a very high level of probability that they won't screw me over. Second, usually the medium to small operators don't have, you know, deals flow coming in every other week. They don't have hundreds of different LPs um, to sort of provide deals for. And sort of it's more smaller operations, smaller shops, Many times they have access to deals or they'll do deals that are smaller deals that have really high potential. And these smaller deals, the, the bigger operators don't look at. And so that's for me, I, what I've learned that, that works. Um, the second thing is usually, and this isn't, isn't for everyone, isn't across the board, but the medium and smaller operators have better terms in terms of like the, the waterfalls and the prefs and all that, um, with, with the LPs. Um, 
I mean, I could go on and on, but like those, I, I, I think those are like the top two. And then there are different questions I like to ask. Yeah. I mean, like, l- let's dive into those. So I, I think I very much agree, right? The, the, the larger the operator, the more established they are in the market, the, the bigger the team, the more, uh, maybe overhead that they have, but they also have a lot more systems and can maybe handle a lot more volume. But, um, and, uh, but on the other hand, just, yeah, I mean, I think I've remembered this quote from Warren Buffett, uh, where, you know, if you're trying to deploy 1 million versus trying to deploy 100 million, they're totally different opportunities that you're investing in. Uh, and from what I'm hearing from you is like, you're finding that the, the, the operators that are earlier in their career might be riskier, um, but you really focus on getting to know them a little bit better. Uh, and because they're finding smaller deals that, uh, one, there's not as many fees because they're still trying to maybe get, um, you know, build their investor base. Uh, and, and two, it's less capital being put to work. Uh, and so they can go after these opportunities that have much higher upside that these bigger funds just, it's not, it doesn't even make sense for them to go after a, a five or a $10 million deal. I also think it's a different type of risk. Um, yeah, the bigger operators have a lot of experience. So the risk of them sort of not analyzing a deal correctly, um, or the risk of them not getting a good deal because they're big and they have a lot of power is lower. But on the other hand, the way I see it, when an operator has a thousand LPs that need to deploy capital, that operator needs to supply supply for that demand. And it's a numbers game. The, like people, Not because they're bad or wrong or, 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 do, or like scamming anyone, but just the fact the numbers, like the more deals you do, some of them fail. That's just like, and, and, and you take it into account statistically when you invest like that. But when you do one or two deals a year as an operator, you're going to go all in and like, you're not Those deals work. need to work. They need to work. Like you cannot go to an investor and say, hey, "Listen, I'm so sorry. This like underperformed, or we worst case we lost." I mean that the the risk of that happening is a lot lower. In, in my my, I might be wrong, right? But that's just like my approach. Um, yeah, or maybe with the the operators that you found, you feel like that risk is yeah, lower. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you've spanned now across a couple different asset classes. You said, uh, multifamily self storage and ground up development. Um, how, how did you pick? So, I mean, you said operators. Uh, I can go ahead and, but, but I have to believe that there's more than that, right? Um, like why, why self storage? Why, um, why ground up development? And I when before our conversation, something I picked up on is you focused a lot on this value add component. Um, talk to us about maybe is that an area that you focus or is that just the type of product that you like? So, so when I find an operator that I trust, then the numbers need to match a strategy. And I mentioned that before. And what I mean by that is that if I do a ground up development deal, it needs to be shorter term, higher, higher IRR than a multifamily value add type deal. And a multifamily value add type deal, BC, let's say, C type deal needs to be different than a storage deal because the numbers are that the risk is different. Everything is different. So the numbers need to match. And so I'll, I'll, I'll even if I find an, uh, an operator I trust, if I get a deal that doesn't match that strategy that I'm looking for, I won't invest. And so, um, it, I I can't come and say I believe that storage is the next big thing. 
I believe that ATM funds are the next big thing I, or, or multi-fund. I just, I can't say that because I don't know. Honestly, I don't, I don't go and do enough research into understanding where the future is going to lie and which asset class, which is going to go down, which is going to go up. Um, I just don't, I personally, like, I, it's so, there's so many factors that go into that. It's sort of a gambling. It's like, in my mind, it's sort of like stock picking. Um, but again, I, I might be wrong because I'm not a financial professional, right? I mean, I, I don't go and analyze this type of stuff. You probably know that better than I do. <laughs> um, so, so one of the things that you're, t- you're talking about here is you're investing in asset classes where you don't have as much expertise. Uh, so, you know, I would say the typical investor is one that invests in funds, um, where, because they have some sort of expertise that creates cash flow. Uh, but that expertise is different than all these opportunities that they might want to invest in. Knowing that and knowing that the general consensus is that you should be maybe investing in funds that give you access to expertise that falls outside of your own. How, how do you, or how does one assess whether a fund or a GP is good or not without understanding that particular asset class or fund type? That's a great point. I think that it's speaking with other people that you trust that have either invested with that operator or that know the asset class and get insights from them. Um, cause there's no, I, I mean, again, I will not be an expert in an asset class that I invest in. Even if I go and read about it, I probably won't know like the tip of the iceberg about what you need to know about it. And so it's all about, again, it's all about trust and finding people and networking, um, listening to podcasts, reading online about stuff, like just like, and more around people, less around the asset class itself. Um, so when, when you're in your, when you're talking to these people, like what questions are you asking them? Is it like, yeah, what questions are you asking them? So again, because it's more about the operator, um, I'll ask them sort of obviously how many, like, have you invested with this, with this person? How many times, how many investments have you done? Would you invest again with this operator? And then when you go down into the details, have communications been as you expected returns and all that. Um, and then sort of, if it's a specific asset class, then I'll ask overall these groups that we're part of, like, all right, what do you guys think about this asset class? Just sort of the, the wisdom of the crowd. Um, I don't know if it's worth much, right? But it's worth more than I know, at least. And it gives me a direction. Like if, if everyone says, listen, you do not want to get close to this asset class and everyone, there's a consensus around that, then shit, I'm not going to get into that asset class. Um, so it just helps be, be like being a little more knowledgeable. I don't think I'm ever going to be an expert or everyone, anyone will help me be an expert. Um, I know what I'm good at and I know what I want to be good at and I know what I don't. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've mentioned that, and I, I know just from knowing you, you have now dived into building this company visor that focuses on tracking your investment. So talk to us about how you got into that. What problem do you see in that space that's the needs are currently not being met and wh- why you think this kind of product needs to exist? Yeah. So, I mean, over the years, we've invested in a bunch of deals, right? And then a few years ago, uh, our spreadsheets just began to break. And I mean, again, good problems, but I get an email. From spreadsheets the- to track your investments. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry, that's an important. Yeah, for sure. Spreadsheets yeah. that, that track my stuff. So, so walk us through that. Like, yeah. you're you have a Google sheet or an Excel sheet, and you have a column that says investment name yeah. and how much you invested and the date and like like walk us through that. Like, get into the problem. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, so the idea. He, I mean, all right. So when you invest in these types of products, like I want to remember what I invested in how much I invested, what my expectations were, and then ongoing holding this investment, what happens on the way? Like I get cash flow distributions or capital calls, or I get an update regarding specific, like these are things that I track. Um, and I have to file taxes, K1s, you know, every year. Um, and ta- anyway, it's, it's, it just became really difficult when you have like multiple numbers of these types of investments across different entities, holding structures, it's just complicated. And that's why this, those spreadsheets for tracking that, when you try to manipulate them too much, it becomes a whole job on its own. And we're like, shit, this doesn't make any sense. Like we, we, we're doing this to be passive. And now we're becoming more active in like being our own money, money wealth managers. And again, like we, it was either that or just paying someone a lot of money, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to do this for us. And we're like, shit, we're from tech. We're in tech. Like, well, let's just, get an engineer, build us a product to track our own stuff, automate the whole process. Um, and then while doing that, a bunch of friends wanted it as well. And at that point, we're like, wait, is there a whole new business opportunity here? Is there an inefficiency like, like there was in, in Sigoma in the diamond industry, like this inefficiency? Because, I mean, there have to be more people like us that have these types of complex, these types of complex alternative investments. And then we just set out to interview like hundreds of people across the world how do they do it just like a friend who knows a friend who knows two other friends just like talking with them and we found there's millions of people like us we decided to build a new a new startup which is visor which is basically to automate all that for people like us so so to reiterate to make sure i'm understanding so as you uh as you get start making more investments uh i think i have 12 at this point and i i actually was just dealing with this problem this morning but tracking who is the who's the operator where are you getting your fund documents from you know did you get your k1 yet or not uh you know what is the actual what's the target return and then how much what's your return to date um is it on track or off track tracking all of that stuff is uh kind of been the the problem that you're solving and and basically you have this tool that pulls like how do you pull all that information in um to to track it so so we try to act like a family office in in a sense and a family office is like one of these places that if you're a multi multi multi-millionaire or billionaire you're gonna have a team that does all this for you right but if you you might have money but not that much we're, we're that team that service so for example i'll get an email from an operator from a fund i'll just forward it to visor um I'll link in my bank accounts and we'll automatically detect transactions in, in, in my bank accounts and link those transactions to the investments themselves. And then we'll know like what's on track, what's not. Um, we'll project cash flow and let you know like, all right, there's a distribution coming up or a capital call or liquidation event. You might want to deploy it somewhere else. And then we also show, show you where other people like you are investing to create this more like benchmarking community aspect of making better decisions because this private market of investments. And by the way, it's for everything. It's not just private investments. It's everything. Brokerage accounts, cars, like anything goes into the platform to be that holistic private concierge approach for people that have the complexity. And we want to add a bunch of stuff on top of that as well. But essentially that's, uh, that, that's the gist of it. 
Yeah. So, so being a family office, but for the, the investor that maybe is invested under $10 million in, in that kind of stuff. You'd be surprised. Like we've, we, we have people with a lot more than that as well for some reason. Um, and also a lot less, but it's like, you see a whole spectrum of, of portfolios. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. This was awesome. Uh, let's hunt. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was great. Love diving into all the stuff. And uh, thanks for sharing your words of wisdom uh, with the rest of us in our audience. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, Pascal. You're amazing. Thanks a lot. Yeah, man. All right. Talk soon. All right. Bye.